Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. The subject of my work, Myra Kalman says, is the normal daily things that people fall in love with. She is a visual storyteller, and to be in conversation with her is a little like wandering into one of the cartoons you might see in The New Yorker and which she might have drawn. Millions of us have been prompted to smile and think by Myra Kalman's work in a museum or the recent illustrated revision of Strunk and White's Elements of Style or a New York Times blog or her lovely books and her drawings about dogs. Her words and pictures bring life's whimsy and quirkiness into relief right alongside life's intrinsic seriousness, its most curious truths. The way that we move through space is really interesting to me, and I am conscious of the fact that we are moving and dancing in our way all day long. It's funny because Nietzsche said that a day that doesn't have dance in it is a lost day, which you wouldn't expect from somebody like Nietzsche, who was crazy. And intense. And intense (laughs) and had such a giant mustache, as I write about. But the fact is that we really are all moving and dancing all day long. And the older you get, the more dangerous it is. And you can trip. I tripped on the sidewalk and broke my arm. And I thought, well, how did this happen? This is absurd. So uh, my heart goes out to everybody. That's it. My heart goes out to everybody. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Myra Kalman is the author and illustrator of over 20 books for adults and children. She's well known for her New York Times blogs that have become books like The Principles of Uncertainty. She grew up in the Bronx and now lives in Manhattan. We spoke in 2017. You were born in Israel, uh, sounds like, and you, but you came to New York at the age of four. How would you describe um, the spiritual background of your childhood, however you would define that? It's interesting because really all of my work goes back to my childhood, as many people uh, can say about their lives, and even the childhood of my mother in Belarus. So I'm constantly relating to and living in the family the stories, the, the, the light, the air, the sea, mm. the cafes, the fluttering awnings, all of that resonates so strongly for me in all of my work. And I'm, I'm painting and writing about it all the time, and even more so now. Mm. You, you know, I think that's right, that, that so much of who we become and even like the questions we follow all our lives— go back to that, but I I feel like you're more in touch with that than a lot of people. Uh, It's relentless, whether I like it or not. And it's also my, you know, I'm relentlessly in touch with something wonderful, which I guess is a good thing. But I, uh, I'm, it's so profound and so wonderful and so sad and so everything that I can't stop it. And it just gets richer and richer. It was your mother's family that came from Belarus, is that right? Or both my father both and them. my mother. They just came in different times, and they I met see. in Israel, but they both came from little villages not far from each other, actually, which I went to visit a few years ago. Uh-huh. So, I, you know, I don't know how you describe yourself. I think when people call you a visual storyteller, that's, that feels like a good pointer to me. Where do you trace the roots of that in your early life? 
It's really such a, a lovely and erratic tracing. I really thought that I was going to be a writer, and everything was uh, born of that. I read Pippi Longstocking when I was eight years mm-hmm. old, and I thought, that's it, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm, I can do that. And uh, then my writing became so heavy and laden with angst and misery and mm. confusion and so tedious that I thought, this can't be the right thing to do. I want to do something fun and easy, and that might be drawing. Uh, so my sister was an artist, and I thought, well, that looks like a tremendous amount of fun, even though, of course, the artists were very miserable, but I thought, I can do that. Mm. So my writing informs my painting, and the painting informs the writing, and it, it, they really are connected in, in very intimate and vital ways. It's so interesting that you describe your early writing as angst-ridden, because that's so different from, I think, the words someone might use to describe your books, your your illustrated writing now, right? I mean, right. Well, the angst is invisible. I mean, I, I worry <laughs> and suffer tremendously. I must assure everybody, but I just somehow am able to eliminate that and come across as a very optimistic and joyous person, which, in fact, I also am. So I'm completely confused. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I mean, I would say I don't know if I would if I would talk about angst, but I I mean, definitely, and we're going to talk about this. There's you touch on very serious subjects, like very deep, serious parts of being alive, but somehow hold it in this context of pictures and words, which are also whimsical and playful. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. I mean, you know, I, I would say that one of the things that really struck me as kind of a theme, a thread, as I kind of looked at your body of work, is that, in fact, you actually hold together contradictory experiences and impulses that in fact are the very vitality of life, but that that we often treat as opposites, right? So, <laughs> so angst yes, and whimsy. I, yeah, um, right. But also I would say another one, just kind of thinking about how you, just how I've seen you talk about how you spend your days, how you organize your life and your art, you know, on the one hand, what at least looks on the outside, like very much like just this great spontaneity. I mean, disability and this to follow your nose kind of and and then work with that. But also you you adore ritual and th- those two things work together for you. It's taken me these many years to understand that a human being can encompass very contradictory ideas and feelings at the exact same time. They're Mm -hmm. not separate. They don't even follow each other so much. They just live in you. And for me to clarify what I love, to do what's amazing, to understand my confusion or my sorrow, and to still continue to, I mean, the the thing about it is that you persevere, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I do follow my nose and I do have many rituals that I love following and I love breaking the rituals. So I'm not a prisoner of my the the construct of my day. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'm spending too much time wandering around when I actually have work to do. <laughs> but I always say that's, oh, well, this this must be the work that I need to do right now before I do that other work. And and really, I think the more that I work and the more that I see what my life is, the, the more uh, simple it becomes and very elemental. I mean, it's really a kind of a, it's very boring actually probably if most people had to live it they would go oh that's it <laughs> so well i mean let's talk about um 
you know, how you start your days. And so it's, it's interesting to me. I, I think you don't do this anymore, but it, for a while you used to read the obituaries at the beginning oh, of the day. Oh, that's, that's my religion. That I won't break. Every do you still do that? Day. Beginning of, that's the first thing. Coffee and the obits. Okay, how did that start? When did that start? <laughs> it started, uh, started when I was born. I don't know. It started so many years ago uh, uh, because, of course, the essence of people's lives what happens to them in several hundred words mm. Mm. and a few pictures is really an extraordinary way to start the day to see what the range of human endeavor is from what seems to be trivial to monumental, but none of those are ever trivial and monumental sometimes is even less interesting, but that there is a, a great sense of uh, hope in these obituaries because people have done amazing things. Yeah, I was somewhere, I'm just trying to, in the Principles of Uncertainty, I think you, you have this place where you say maybe that you read the obituaries at the beginning of every day, maybe it is a way of trying to figure out before the day begins what is important. And I am curious about all the little things that make up a life. Can you, uh, do you have some favorite obituaries or obituaries that come to mind that have struck you recently? Like, just as well, an example. Well, recently I just read the obit of a, of, a, of a Hungarian woman whose family escaped the Holocaust and she ended up marrying a cousin of Nehru and lived in <laughs> India and, and uh, had this extraordinary life. So I love that one. Uh, what else was recently amazing? I mean, whenever I think of uh, the best obituaries, I think of the the man who invented the bunt pan, who I have in my book. But, <laughs> right. Uh, oh, there's another one, just, uh, Megan Boyd in Scotland. Yes, Megan one? Boyd, who who created f- uh, the flies for fly fishing her entire life and lived in a little village. Uh, yeah, so she had a fantastic obit and a beautiful photo that I did a painting of. But it was also very kind of intricate, long work, right? I mean, it was... It, it yes. sounds so romantic when we say it like that, and in fact, history-making in a way, but it was also the yeah. the care and the detail. Well, you know, that's what, once again, the perseverance of work, mm-hmm. the insistence that you keep doing it and you continue no matter what, yeah. and through bad periods and better periods. So there she was sitting at her bench 16 hours a day, and when she was invited to Buckingham Palace, she said she couldn't go because she had to go to a dance in the village. Right, and right. I thought, now this yeah. woman's a genius. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you read the obituaries, and then do you, and then do you walk every day? Walk in the park? Yes. Well, I I meet a friend, and it's now it's twenty years that we have walked three times a day in Central Park. Mm. The other days I try to walk, but I'm not as motivated without her. Uh, she's a, a great companion, and then we have a cup of coffee. She's a doctor. She goes and saves lives, and <laughs> I I don't know what I do. I save myself, or I or I help uh, I help other people live. Mm. And in between, after we finish the coffee, I take the bus down Fifth Avenue, and then I'm probably the happiest person, you know, on the bus. And then I say, in New York, and then I say, in the United States, and then I say, in the world. It's really extraordinary. I mean, when we're in the park and there aren't that many people there and we go all year round, uh, we think, where is everybody? How could they be so (laughs) stupid (laughs) as not to understand what they have here for for themselves? Mm, But mm. there you go. Here's another line of yours I love. We see trees. What more do we need? That's really true. I mean, everybody 
It's it's really hard to be sad. And, of course, I'm always looking at the things that make somebody less sad, mm-hmm. uh, a.k.a. happy, uh, which is not a.k.a. at all. And so walking and looking at trees really is one of the glories of the world. And, you know, we just we say rejoice when we see yeah. these things. We You know, we say that when we see people walking and going about their business. But something about trees, of course— uh, I they're very hard to paint, by the way, but I'm I'm mm. happy to try. Mm. Well, and again, I don't know. I, mean, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but I I think I've also heard plenty of people talking about, you know, really important moments of their lives that had to do with pondering a tree. And I mean, you know, it's amazing to me that trees are just they're so perfect and gorgeous and amazing, and they they just are. They just are. Um, they just yeah. are, and they are whether yeah. we're looking at them or painting them or admiring them or not or whatever the weather is. Um, but I don't think most people, you know, even as I say that um, about myself, I don't put myself into that position to be adoring them and letting them make, make me be happy and get some perspective on my life, right? But you put yourself out there to do that. Well, you know, there's always to, you can always start. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> you can look, and you know. Uh, leaves grow on trees and birds sit in trees and Mm. birds sing and Mm. it's just it's a whole beautiful package I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being today I'm with the visual storyteller Myra Kalman We touched on this a little bit when we when we touched on angst at the beginning of our conversation, but another, I would say, just juxtaposition that you hold together and you hold together as vitality is kind of life's intrinsic whimsy and quirkiness and also life's intrinsic sorrow. Yeah, and actually, I wouldn't uh, attribute the uh, whimsy and the quirkiness. I would say it's completely inexplicable, random, yeah, confusing, okay. <laughs> fragile yeah. fragment. You know that we we impose, I impose in my way a sense of humor about it all, of course. But I don't know what the world offers. The world offers so many different things that are in, really incomprehensible. Yeah. So um, the take that you have on it, of course, is what what happens with the rest of the day. Right. Right. You know. I, d- I didn't see this anywhere else. Um, obviously, I haven't read every single word, but there's one place, um, and I believe it's in the Principles of Uncertainty, where you you say that your mother did not marry the man she loved, but instead your father. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, it's sad. I, I think about that a lot because I was so close to her. My father was away a lot. He traveled half the year, not consecutively, but he was really gone a lot. And the women were left, as I say, to their own devices, which mm. in our case was was kind of wonderful because he was a, a rather, in the old form, a patriarchal man who ruled as the patriarchs did in, in those generations. Mm. So when he was away, we, were, we really flourished in a way and found out what it was like for f- to be a woman, to be a young girl, to be a woman, and to... Just be who you are. And so, um, I, you know, I, of course, there are so many sad things about that. But I think that the strength of the women in my family was so formidable, even even in their sorrow or suffering, or, or that um, something registered in me that said, 
you can observe really unhappy relationships mm-hmm. and still find a good one. I found a fantastic relationship with my husband. So I think probably one of the things I learned was what not to do. Mm. So it's a good lesson. You can watch closely and say, aha, this is not going to happen to me. Yeah, well... I'm, that's good, it, but I, it, can, it can work both ways. Did Did you know yeah. when you were growing up that was this a story your mother told about herself about this man? No, she, she had never. My, you know, my mother never uh, said anything about anything negative, mm-hmm. uh, and it was really from other people in the family mm-hmm. and family lore that right. you know you just absorb through the years that uh, she was madly in love with somebody else, and it just it, uh, it for the fates did not allow it. Yeah. Um, and again, for all the um, beauty and playfulness and, you know, what is it you say? You know, the subject of my work continues to be the normal daily things that people fall in love with. Um, and then you you also are very open about thinking a lot about death and fearing death. Is that, has that always been true? Who does? You know, Krista, well, who doesn't? I'm, I'm always do I... amazed if somebody says, you think about death so much. And I said, what are you thinking about? I mean... Well, I, I can't imagine. But I thought about it when I was um, when I was getting ready for this. I I don't know that I do think about. It. I mean, I have all kinds of fears. I've, it's not that I don't yeah. have fears and anxieties, but not in the way it comes out in your work. Yeah, I think you're lucky. Uh, <laughs> okay. I don't. You know what? I think that it has. Of course, it has a lot to do with. The family history, which is especially from my father, who left Belarus and his family didn't leave. And they thought, well, you know, what could go wrong? And they were all killed. Mm, mm, Uh, That's mm. what went wrong. Mm -hmm. So um, I was brought up on the idea that everything could disappear. And this is nothing, obviously, many, many people have this, that all could be lost in a nanosecond, that you're never safe. And that um, tragedy and literal killing is is part of the possibility. Yeah. And especially going to Israel and having the sense of, again, being warriors in the defense of a nation that's being attacked in, in the, in historically. Of course, things have changed so dramatically now it's intensely complicated to even discuss it. But if, from the point of view of people who were escaping the Holocaust and coming to Israel— the sense of, you know, we we cannot let this happen again. So that somehow enters into this, somehow it very clearly enters into the persona of, well, wow, my family was killed. Yeah, well, it's in your DNA is what we're yeah. learning, right? It's yeah. literally in right. your body. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. And then and your husband died at 49, which is so young, although you had such a good long time together, right? You had we had three, an extraordinary life. Three decades? And I think we, three, yes. And, um... Uh, I think how how fortunate, how completely amazing that we met in summer flunk out class at NYU <laughs> in the late sixties when everybody was doing everything except going to school, yeah. and we had such an an amazing time and uh, and you know and had a family, had two children, and worked together and really were each other's muses and support in every way. Um, so I am profoundly grateful to have had that relationship and to have somehow been with a man who was very courageous and and taught me mm. how to be brave. Mm. Because he was brave? Did he teach you by being that? He was, he was you know, I always used to say he was fearless. Mm. He didn't ever think anything would stop him, ever. 
You know, he did, it, it just wasn't in his vocabulary. Hmm. So when you live with somebody like that, uh, it's very interesting to say you have an idea and then if you don't act on it, well, why wouldn't you? Uh, it sounds very simple because, of course, some things don't work out and, and it's, it's not always such a straight line. But you live in a diff- you're breathing a different kind of air. Mm. There's, a, there's a passage where you write and illustrate um, about, you know, I mean, you start with Gershwin dying at the age of 38 of a brain tumor. You say, he's buried in the same cemetery as my husband. My husband died at the age of 49. I could collapse thinking about that. But I don't want to talk about that now. I want to say that I love that George is nearby under a leafy tree and Ira Gershwin, too. We're going to visit him next week. And I and it really, the high point is, we can say, I like visiting Tibor, but the high point is going to the Gershwins. No, I also, also the Barasinis are n- nearby. And I always think of a beautiful box of chocolates and how they should have a chocolate store there in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's actually, it's very uplifting to go to a cemetery. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. And so yes, somehow is. things fall into place in a, in a nice way. Mm-hmm. And it's good to visit him. Mm. It was also interesting to me. I mean, you're you're beloved and known also for your um, Max Stravinsky, the poet dog, and your writings about dogs and your books about dogs, also for children and it, but also writing for adults. Um, that you actually got your first dog, Pete, when your husband Tibor was dying from cancer. So there was that connection to that. It was really profound, and of course, I was terrified of dogs before that, and would never entertain getting one. But we decided that. Uh, for the sake of the children, it was really incredible to have a dog uh, who would be a great mood elevator. And I just didn't realize that I was probably the recipient of the most <laughs> the most mood elevation uh, from Pete. You wrote in Beloved Dog, um, I thought this was wonderful. I'm sure many people who love dogs will resonate with this. They are constant reminders that life reveals the best of itself when we live fully in the moment and extend our unconditional love. And it is very true that the most tender, uncomplicated, most generous part of our being blossoms without any effort when it comes to the love of a dog. That's <laughs> <laughs> my my children have something to say about that. What do they say? So, well, they want to know who you know who I love more. Of course, you know, and they're not such children anymore. But I think that when they were younger, there was a little bit of a so. Who do you really love over here? But uh, but because of the simplicity of it, because of the yeah. that we can do that really easily, and uh, yeah, so yeah, the love relationship with our children is complicated. Because yeah, they can speak. They are complicated. Yeah. They can speak. They, that's, a, that's a big problem right away. So. Um, but I also love how you um, you name uh, dogs as natural comedians. Yes, of course. They're very funny. I mean, that's, of course, when I started looking at them, you know, when you're walking down the street. They're just, they're heroic and they're comic at the same time, which I mm-hmm. guess is my favorite way of looking at things. After a short break, more with Myra Kalman. We're putting all kinds of great extras into our podcast feed. Lots of poetry, music, and a new feature, Living the Questions. You can get it all as soon as it's released when you subscribe to On Being on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. 
On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the beloved visual storyteller Myra Kalman. She is well-known for her books for children and adults, her love of dogs, her New Yorker covers. Her New York Times illustrated blogs become books with titles like The Principles of Uncertainty. Myra Kalman's words and her pictures bring life's intrinsic quirkiness and whimsy into relief right alongside life's intrinsic seriousness. I feel like you, um, I think what people love in your work also is that you're a real connoisseur of the art of of laughing at oneself and also making other people laugh. And I, I think that must be very a very joyful thing to be able to do. It is, and I, I probably understood that when I was quite young. Mm. And maybe that was one of the things that I decided I needed to have in the face of whatever uh, craziness was going on in my family that uh, having a sense of humor. I, I think also maybe coming from another country and, and just observing and having a sense of pleasure and joy in, in learning a new language and mm-hmm. watching people. And, and of course, in my family, everybody had a great sense of humor. So it wasn't as if I, I invented it in my family. That, that was the language of conversation, that you told funny stories. Hmm. Really? Yeah, especially from people, you know, who come from the Russian, you know, yes. the, the, <laughs> the tragic Russian writers. But hand in, as we say always, hand in hand with that right. was a stupendous sense of humor and, sh- and a sharp wit. Do you have a meditation practice? I have a limping. I know that's kind you know, of a um, personal question, but I, I've seen you. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, I, the, the good news is that there's nothing personal about it. I... Uh, was hired by a wonderful editor, Barry Boyce, at Mindful Magazine to meditate and to do a column about meditation. So I always say I was paid to meditate, which I think is not a bad way (laughs) to encourage somebody to do it. That's right. And uh, I went on a few uh, very short, silent retreats, a few days, and, you know, I was taught the practice of meditation. And then I wasn't flippant about it. I really enjoyed it, and I really understood the value of being able to calm your soul and steady your your anxieties, um, especially in the middle of the night. I'm immensely grateful that I have this practice, which I don't do regularly at all, Mm. you know, on the bus or walking here or waiting online or something like that or in the middle of the night. So I think that it's it's non-spiritual and it's non-religious. Uh, which is really important for me because I don't like any of any religious dogma at all, mm-hmm. um, and I value the sense that it's humanistic. Right. Well, and actually, I feel it's something you both portray in your work and model is honoring. I would say meditative spaces or even contemplative spaces in the everyday, but also in public life like parks or museums or you know I think of libraries in this way as well. Mm-hmm. You, do you think about it that way? I absolutely think that a museum is the one of the deepest places of meditation that there could be. Yeah. 
maybe even more than a library because you're looking in a, in a museum you're not reading i mean you're reading a little bit but you're basically just wandering and looking and once again the function of the brain what happens to the brain is very different um, than i don't know than being in a supermarket even though i yeah, love being yeah. in a supermarket so wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> I right. love supermarkets. Right. I love to look at all the packaging. To me, that's a little bit like a museum, but that's a digression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we are we have the opportunity to understand silence around us and and really looking yeah. all the time. There's always the opportunity, and it's there's never a lack of things to look at, and and you know there's never a lack of time not to talk. Yeah, and I mean, museums are. Just among the very few silent places in culture, right? Where that is part of the element of the experience. It's actually very unusual. I guess when we listen, I guess when we go to a concert, I guess there are places mm-hmm. we listen, but there's not... Right. It's different than looking at something and not talking and absorbing it in, yeah. in that way. Uh if if you approach it the right way and don't trudge through too many things that you can't stand, mm-hmm. uh, it really gives you a sense of inspiration and uh, and clarity in your life. I spoke to Anne Hamilton a couple of years ago, and she used this phrase, alone together. I think that's the other thing. Mm-hmm. It's different from being at a concert or a performance where, where you're having a communal, a collective experience because you're kind of, it's both in a museum, right? You're having a very personal m- meander and what right. you're paying attention to, you're choosing, but and yet you are not alone. And it's, you know, I spend Fridays at the Met because, for two reasons. One, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, I have an exhibit at the Met with the, an installation with my son, called, uh, which is a recreation of my mother's closet. Oh. And it's in the American wing, and it's a wonderful—my mother only wore white, and she was very precise about her— clothing and about her her closet and her closet really was a work of art in its way so it's now at the met i'm happy to say you, you know so your mother's closet uh i mean i guess even when you said that the supermarket for you is kind of like a museum that you're looking at the packaging and i think of also the way you talk about being in the park and you also take great delight in clothing hats shoes um and not in a, not in the way we tend to think about those things in terms of fashion but in terms of how interesting humans are, <laughs> how interesting yeah, life is. <laughs> I'm, I'm so curious about so many things that I'm, I surprise myself by with, with my curiosity and my, and my desire, uh, my delight in seeing all of this stuff, because at a certain point you'd say, okay, enough already. But clearly it's never enough. And, the, you know, it's a surprise. You just don't know yeah. what you're going to see. Yeah. And the fact that I can use that surprise in my work, the fact that I can not know what the painting that I have to do tomorrow will include for an assignment that I I know what the assignment is, but I don't know what woman wearing what dress, walking what dog, mm. if that's the case, or mm. some person's playing the violin on the street, how they enter the work. And I think that the immediacy of my emotions is felt in the drawings. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about um, the principles of uncertainty, which was... Um to like continue on your uh, the the philosophical meditative side of you, <laughs> which is also, is also whimsical. Um, it's interesting, you know. Your mother comes in again. Your mother's map of the world. Um, obviously, people who are just listening to us talk won't have that picture in front of them. But talk about what is there and why that is so important for you. That's an important touch point for you. That map. 
I have to say that the map, for those listeners who are inclined, I've spoken of it so many times that it must be online. So if you go to Sarah Berman's map of the United States or something like that, you might find it. But uh, when I was doing the next year's piece, the the year that I did about American history and the pursuit of happiness for the New York Times after my year of of introspection, uh, they sent me to all kinds of places. And I asked many people to draw a map of the United States from memory. Just sit down and do it. And, you know, as I say, it's a complicated country with lots of different sections. And I don't think most people would get it 100% right. But my mother sat down and made an egg-shaped circle and Canada on top. So, so far, so good. But then she has California and Hawaii underneath Canada. Uh, She has... Everything is completely topsy-turvy. She has <laughs> Lenin, the village she came from, and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And she <laughs> has a few random places that you're, you're, are incomprehensible. And then through the center, she says, sorry, the rest unknown. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and I have a huge version of that on my wall to remind me that it's not about, and I always say it's not about getting it right. It's about just about getting it. Mm. And that's a big big difference. If you have the freedom to use your imagination and to really express what you're thinking, you're going to come up with something a lot different than a correct version of the United States of America or anything. Well, and it's also evocative right now in a way that you wouldn't have foreseen previously. But, you know, this fact that we, all of us all around in all of our differences, seem to be operating with different maps of the places that we know and the places that matter. I mean, that's a real phenomenon right now, these these maps in our heads that are... That's the maps in our heads. And, yeah. you know, of course, then I think about the New Yorkistan map that I did with Rick Meyerowitz for the New Yorker after yes. 9-11. And I think yes. that the conversations that people have about who are the tribes, who yeah. do you belong to, who do you belong with, do you want to belong, are there all kinds of new tribes now that we never understood or knew about and really to find out you know who's who who do you love and who do you want mm-hmm. to be with so you're forced to say who do i relate to yeah. and who do i respect yeah and that's a really big question and who am i afraid of yeah, you know that that you, it would almost be a really fascinating civic activity for you to ask Americans to do their map. You know, to have your mother's map as the as the prototype mm-hmm. and say, create yeah. your own. That's a good idea. You know, it would be right now fascinating. the The pursuit of happiness, because you said, also came out of. I mean, you went to all these places, right? You 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 met with all kinds of different public service, and you went to the Capitol and farms and Mount Vernon and the White House. Mm-hmm. How, how, I went to the inauguration. I met right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I went to an army base. All the places that I wouldn't have access to as a normal person, the New York Times was able to send me to to all of these places. Yeah. How did that surprise you? How did that change you, that experience? It, it, it changed me profoundly. I really knew very little about American history. And the more I traveled and the more I read and the more I met people, uh, the more extraordinary the history of the United States. It was clear that this country is founded by some miracle chance of geniuses (laughs) and that they were able to form an idea. This was 2010, we should say, right? Or the book was published in 2010. uh, Actually, I I did the traveling. I started 2008 with the inauguration of Obama. Okay, okay, yeah. And, um, you know, went to Monticello and uh, did a piece about Lincoln and did a piece about Jefferson and, and really had a chance, still superficial, obviously, to uh, admire the United States so much more than I ever had. 
Yeah. With all the complexity, with all of the horrible parts which exist for every country. And, uh, and I had a lot of fun thinking about all the good things that go on here. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful celebration. Um, and, you know, and I say that, and that can sound like a coffee table book, and it's not, right? It has that whimsy. It has that quirkiness. It has this constant interaction that is there in real life between play and what's interesting and fun and also hard and sad. There's a part, again, I meant to bring this, but, you know, it's okay because nobody's listening to us is going to have the pictures in front of them either. You were at Fort right. Campbell, Kentucky, mm-hmm. the 101st Airborne Division. Um, the way you wrote about those soldiers uh, in that place, say, say a little bit about that, about what you saw that. It was very moving to me. I, the, the thing that happens when you meet people is that all generalizations fly out the window. Yeah. And you realize that people are leading very uh, particular and very complex lives and that you can't just make blanket statements. This group does this and that group does that. I mean, it's just immensely complicated. And every human being is a human being. So people who you might think you have absolutely nothing in common with philosophically or just on a daily level, you find out that there's a tremendous amount of contact. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it might be so obvious to say that, but I don't think that you can appreciate that until you actually go and live that. Mm-hmm. And so the the more often that you can, it reduces a kind of arrogance or a kind of superiority like, oh, I know the right way and you obviously don't, to uh, clearly we have different ways of looking at things, but we really can have a, a conversation about it and find the common humanity. So that's what that taught me yeah. in, in, a, in a really wonderful way. Yeah, and they were they were getting the 101st Airborne Division was getting ready to go to the battlefield, right? I think to Iraq right. or Afghanistan, and uh, so I mean they were doing serious business. But you talk about you know how each one of them is so amazing, each one of them breaks your heart, you know, just that the human the the, the humanity. And there's, then there's a picture of a piece of cherry pie. <laughs> Do you remember this from the base? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I'm always looking out for a good pie. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, a good painting of a pie. You know, it's those moments. Of course, the smaller moments diffuse the the bigger ones, and also yeah. they're they're really uh, important. And so. Uh, how do you sit together over a cherry pie? Yeah, and, uh, and it wasn't that great, but you know it was good. The to picture have. it looked delicious in the picture. Yeah, the picture was better <laughs> than the <laughs> irresistible. I think you said something like, "You know, this this uh, great solace is provided by in the base by the cher- piece of cherry pie." <laughs> yes. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with the visual storyteller, Myra Kalman. I feel like Lincoln is really important to you, too, Abraham Lincoln. I love Lincoln. (laughs) I'm in love with Lincoln. (laughs) And how did that happen? Has that been a long-time love? (laughs) <laughs> and he doesn't know. I haven't said a word to him. Uh, uh, it started, well, I, I was asked by a library in Philadelphia to do a piece about Lincoln. So I went to their archive and I was looking at the work and started, and, and I have books of photographs of Lincoln. Of course, he is the iconic, the first person to be, photo, the first president to be photographed. Mm-hmm. And also just this extraordinarily beautiful 
humanitarian man of kindness and wit, a, you know, a poet. And uh, so I, and the more I read about him, the more I understood that he did have a sense of humor and that he also was completely brilliant. And I thought I really had a big crush on him and I was a little bit annoyed that he was with Mary Todd Lincoln. <laughs> I wasn't even, you know, and I wasn't registering the, the, the glitch of the time thing. I just was like, I really should be with him. And um, so... Uh, and it's, you know, who doesn't fall in love with Lincoln? You mm. spend five minutes reading about him or looking at his face, mm. and it's really hard not to fall in love with this man. I did notice that you you noted that his stepmother loved him madly and let him be free to daydream. And I feel like you saw, you know, your own mother and your, the way she let you be free to daydream in that. That's true, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the connection. But uh, they make a lot of it in the history books, that mm -hmm. she really was somebody very unusual, and he didn't wasn't so keen on doing chores mm -hmm. uh, the way all the other boys were. And he was he was more interested in reading Shakespeare, which is extremely unusual. He You know, he only had a year of formal schooling. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to be kind and love you for that, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's very, that's critical. Mm -hmm. And also he's... I think we know this, right, that he's a good example of that. You said he has a sense of humor. I mean, he's kind of this glorious human being and also somebody who had great sadness and struggled with depression. Yeah, I mean, Jefferson had, um, you know, severe migraine attacks, which come from stress and, mm. you know, and sadness also. I mean, other things maybe. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine a human being, any human being that doesn't have attacks of depression. So. Yeah. Clearly, somebody who's living his life, losing his children, being in the war. I mean, I, I, the list could go on. It. How could he not be depressed? There'd have to be something wrong with him yeah. if he didn't get go into depressions. And and then, of course, he only lived four days after the end of the Civil War, which is an extraordinarily sad yeah. fact for him and for the country and for history. Yeah. This is kind of going back to the walks you take in the morning. Um, something you write about is that you um, you have a specialty of following old people who have trouble walking. <laughs> yes, and I, I, I really try to walk like them. And tell me about that. Uh, you know, I'm co-creating a ballet now with a wonderful choreographer called John Higginbotham. And he's doing the choreography, but a lot of the time, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I'm in. A, I'm doing this, the visuals, but I'm also in it, hmm. which I guess constitutes being an older person in a ballet. <laughs> and so, the way that we move through space is really interesting to me, and I am conscious of the fact that we are moving and dancing in our way all day long. And um, it's funny because Nietzsche, if I can quote hmm. Nietzsche, said that a day that doesn't have dance in it is a lost day, which you wouldn't expect from somebody like Nietzsche. Who no. So, no. Well, who was crazy. But at any yeah. rate, um, but also... <laughs> and intense. And, and intense <laughs> and had such a giant mustache as I write about. But it, but I never, when I saw that quote, I said, this is incomprehensible. But the fact is that we really are all moving and dancing all day long. Mm -hmm. And the older you get, the more challenging it is, obviously, and the more dangerous it is. And you can trip. I, I tripped on the sidewalk and broke my arm, and I thought, mm -hmm. well, how did this happen? This is absurd. So I, uh, my heart goes out to everybody. That's it. My heart goes out mm -hmm. to everybody. You, you wrote these, this, these are beautiful words, I think, and this is from Principles of Uncertainty, I'm pretty sure. How, how are we all so brave as to take step after step? 
day after day. How are we so optimistic, so careful not to trip and yet do trip, and then get up and say, okay, why do I feel so sorry for everyone and so proud? That's a good question. Why? Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You you mentioned aging, and I, I did want to, I wanted to ask you about that, because it it feels to me like you accomplished earlier, or you kind of held on to something that I think we mostly do when we're kids, and then many of us learn to do again as we get older, which is just to slow down, look around, appreciate, <laughs> challenge the idea that there's any reason to be in a hurry. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you kind of held on to that across your lifespan rather than letting it go for the middle years and then coming back to it, relearning it. And, you know, it's incomprehensible how that happened. But I did, I, you know, I hear that from people. It's not something that I, I don't hear, that I somehow have retained the sense of wonder yeah. about the world and the sense of beauty yeah. and uh, preciousness of our time. So, I mean, sometimes I'm stumbling about not thinking very much. And I have never tried to be that way. That's just, I guess that's how I am. Mm-hmm. Do you think that also grew out of you, that you were emboldened or equipped to do that because of your mother and somehow the way your childhood worked or just also, I guess, how you're constituted? You know, I, 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 the separating the threads is something that I can't do because you're born mm-hmm. a certain way with a certain temperament. Mm-hmm. And then the, the fates allow this temperament to flourish or not, yeah. depending on, you know, on luck. Yeah. So I was lucky. Yeah. But I do feel like it's possible to learn this. And I kind of think your work, your pictures, your books, your writing are little encouragements. <laughs> right. But then I get annoyed at being so encouraging. And I say, wait, I'm really, I have black moods too. Like, don't okay. be so encouraged. It's not so good. So I get a little bit uh, contrarian. It's, you know, I, I know what you're saying. You you don't want to, that sounds kind of cheesy and romantic, romantic and optimistic to be encouraging, but it's not, right? It's complex. Right. It's all, you know, and I shouldn't even, I shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed of being, of seeming to be optimistic or encouraging right. because really it's, it's okay. It's right. I say it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. That's right. It may be um, unfashionable, but it, <laughs> it may also be necessary. Yeah. It's okay. This is kind of an enormous question, but I want to know kind of where you would start walking into it. Um, how your sense of this question of what it means to be human, how your sense of that is evolving now at this point in your life? Well, I think that, you know, I joke about not knowing, but I think that as people get older, they tend to say more clearly, I really don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And of course, that isn't completely true. But the only thing that I'm left with is really who do you love and what do you love to do? So I think that in the end, we're, we're left with the sense of not knowing and striving to find the most true place that you have in this lifetime with people and with work. And I, I don't know what else there is. Hmm. And this idea, I mean, I, this is, these are your words, but that the subject of your work 
continues to be the normal daily things that people fall in love with. That's very resonant with that. I'm just curious. Um, we're talking in the early afternoon. Um, have you fallen in love with something today? Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> what have you fallen things. in love with? Okay, just start. <laughs> uh, well, I've been painting all day, and, mm -hmm. I, um, and I've been doing paintings uh, for this book about cakes, this cookbook. Mm -hmm. I'm doing paintings and short stories, memories of cake. And um, there's a page about meringue. <laughs> and front the cookbook author wrote about meringue. And I found this fantastic photograph of an Eastern European bed that has a huge quilt with a huge scalloped edge. And it's all fluffy and white. And it looks just like a meringue. So I'm doing a painting of that bed <laughs> as the illustration for meringues. Mm. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I've fallen in love with that. And, you know, there was a photograph in the Times today of, of dancers and mm. I've, I cut out a lot of photographs of people dancing, and um, I know I'm going to paint them too. Mm. And I'm sure when I leave here and I walk downtown, I'm going to walk home to 12th Street. There'll be many, many things mm -hmm. that I that will enchant me and make me very happy. <laughs> this has been really delightful. I, I noticed that you said that in your family you don't say goodbye you say so long. Why right. is that? Why is that? I have no idea. I don't know. Because so long sounds a lot sadder than goodbye. So I don't know why. Uh, it's something that my mother started. Okay. And uh, I'm your afraid mother to change again. it. So we began with your mother and we end right with your mother. Everything, it's all connected to her. So Sarah, uh, Sarah said so long. So that's what I do. All right. Well, I'm going to say so long to you. And thank you so much. What a, what a pleasure it's been. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you, Krista. Kalman is the author and illustrator of over 20 books for adults and children. She's a regular contributor to The New Yorker magazine, and she continues to work on ballets with the choreographer John Higginbotham. After she left the studio at the end of this conversation, Myra sent me the following email. You asked what I might fall in love with after our conversation was over. I took off my headphones and walked out of the room and saw these green chairs, which I immediately fell in love with, photographed, and will certainly paint sometime soon. The eternal pleasure of chance encounters. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Tech-Heil, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. <laughs> 
Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.